everyone to the first podcast of Murder Sandwich, a true crime and mystery podcast hosted by yours truly, Vicki Lomstellen. Today I have my co-host, Allison Milton, which was one of my longest standing friends. We've known each other since we were 13. We will not be revealing our ages today, but <laughs> that is a long time. Um, so I'm going to do a quick introduction. She currently works at Shannon Lake Golf Course. Nailed it. And she's going to school to be a medical office assistant. No, actually, just the uh, office administrative assistant. <laughs> I was close. <laughs> so close. But she is definitely my most biggest banter and humor friend, so it should be quite the humorous podcast for us. And so we're just going to get started, and here we go. on John List. John List. Yes. So we're going to start off with his childhood. So his name was John Emile List. I'm not really sure how to pronounce his middle name. You probably did it right. Yeah. (laughs) He was born on September 17th, 1925 in Bay City, Michigan to German-American parents John Sr. and then Alma List. He was an only child and his father ran a local mom and pop store. But he wasn't a very popular man in the community. He really didn't like children (laughs) and made no efforts to hide it, including his own son. That's weird. He would even refer to his own son as the boy. That's even weirder. (laughs) Yes. Um, John grew up as a devout Lutheran, just like his parents. His dad was a Sunday school teacher. He ended up also being a Sunday school teacher. It was a very strict upbringing. His mother was not too keen on him having friends of his own age, as they may turn him against God. What? Yes. So he did also not even have a bedroom of his own. Yikes. He slept in the parlor where he could be easily seen and had essentially no privacy. He he slept on the couch. Did his parents choose that? Yeah. That's messed up. Yeah. So he essentially also had like no women in his life. He only had a few friends going into high school, just was not allowed to have that. Went to church all the time, Sunday school, whole nine yards. So as soon as he turned 18, so 1943, he enlisted into the United States Army and served in the infantry as a lab technician during World War II. So he was discharged from the Army in 1946, where he had enrolled at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where he earned a bachelor's degree in business administration and then a master's degree in accounting. But he was also commissioned as the second lieutenant in the ROTC, which is like the Reserver Officers Training Corporation. A year after he enlisted though, so in 1944, his father did die. He, I'm not sure how, I couldn't find that information. He did (laughs) polio. It's a weird assumption. I know. He did return for the funeral, but people in attendance did notice that John did not shed one tear and seemed relatively, like, uncaring that his father had passed. cold. Yes. During this time, Alma, so his mother, would still visit John, and they would attend church, eat dinner, and read from the Bible for discussions together, just as they did when he was a child. So she, like, always had, like, a pretty firm grasp on him. 
during November 1950, it was the Korean War, and then he was recalled back to active duty for the Korean War. So he got stationed out of, and I'm totally going to butcher this name, <clears throat> Fort Eustis. You, you nailed that, probably. <laughs> it's really weird. It's in Virginia. <laughs> and he met a woman named Helen Taylor while bowling. And she was a widow of an infantry officer who died overseas in the Korean War during active duty. She lived nearby the fort with her nine-year-old daughter, Brenda. Although this did not bug John, it very much bothered Alma. <laughs> Probably. So she did not prove as with Helen as all because she had been married before. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was not a member of the church at all. And I'm not sure how Alma knew this piece of information, but apparently Helen had suffered like many miscarriages and she was only 24. And she felt like that was like inappropriate for her son to marry someone not like it's her fault super weird god so john and helen were married on december 1st uh, 1951 they uh so him and then helen brenda and alma soon moved to northern california where he worked as an army accountant and then he completed his tenure with the military in 1952 and then moved everyone to detroit michigan so he's all over the map yep <clears throat> after the completion of a second tour, so 1952, he then worked for an accounting firm in Detroit and then was an audit supervisor at a paper company in a town called Kalamazoo. I love that name. Yes. So Kalamazoo is where they ended up having their three children together. So the oldest was Patricia and then John Jr. and then Frederick and then Helen's daughter Brenda from her previous marriage. So there was, it was a six-person family, seven if you include Alma. <laughs> so just to quickly talk about Helen for a little bit, because she, her information adds a little bit to the story. Oh my goodness. <clears throat> so Helen did make no effort at all to become part of the church. She was not interested, even though Alma and John really wanted that. She would actually like purposely avoid going to the church. This very much upset John because he was very devout, but mm. he just never said anything. Once she did give birth to their last child together, which was Frederick, she took to drinking and took pills as she was depressed. And then she also became addicted to tranquilizers. Oh my god. After she started seeing a psychiatrist. I was going to say psychologist, but that's not it. They are different. Um, Helen was out constantly spending money and very rarely cared for the children. Yikes. And the neighbors reported that they never saw Helen List. Like, they never really ever saw her. They thought that she was reportedly um, maybe ill or sick, and that's why she never came out. She Mm -hmm. never had a job. Um, It then was revealed at trial later that the nature of this illness was syphilis. Yikes. And she contracted it from her first husband. So even though the disease wasn't contagious anymore, it did make her semi-invalid and actually left her blind in one eye. Mm -hmm. She hid it from the family for years, but then eventually did have to admit it Uh, as the cause of her deteriorating health. Right. And then a doctor did testify at the trial that she drank four or five glasses of scotch a day and then was addicted to tranquilizers. And despite her frailty, she dominated Liss and taunted him, saying that if he was half the man her first husband was, that family wouldn't have the troubles that they were having now. Syphilitic insanity ensues. Yes. I did write here, if case no one knows, syphilis can have long-term effects. 
such as damage to the brain, eyes, heart, nerves, bones, joints, and liver. You can also become paralyzed, blind, demented, or lose feeling in the body. So essentially, don't be silly, wrap your willy. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> nobody wants syphilis. No. I actually didn't know that it could be that detrimental, so that was pretty interesting. I remember hearing a story, I don't remember who, so I'm not going to go into detail, about someone who literally, the husband and the wife of the family, had syphilis, and then they, their children contracted it, and, and they all just like went insane and killed each other or something. <laughs> I may be embellishing, but that's the memory that I have in my head about it. Well, it's not this one. <laughs> Obviously. Okay. Uh, So they moved out to, Brenda ended up moving out of the household as soon as she could, and she got married and moved away. This is when John then moved the family to the East Coast in Rochester, New York. So his first job in New York was actually at his Xerox company, and he was the director of accounting. In 1965, he got accepted a job as a vice president and controller of First National Bank of Jersey City in New Jersey. So he's about 40 years old now. After the job acceptance, he moved the entire family, including his mother, into a Victorian mansion nearby called Breezy Knoll in Westfield, New Jersey. That sounds sketchy already. Yeah. So Breezy Knoll was a 19-room mansion and had a Tiffany stained glass skylight (gasps) over the ornate ballroom. I'll still live there. Yeah. It even had an upstairs apartment for his mother to occupy, and she did loan John $10,000 for the down payment. Damn. So Helen was still an alcoholic at this time, and but other than that, everything from the outside looked totally normal. Like the List family seemed thriving, they're living in this extravagant mansion, he's a vice president of a successful bank, but unfortunately, John lost his job. <gasps> How? Apparently he was let go because people described him as cold. And although he was really good at his job, he essentially was just really unlikable. Oh. So he was apparently, like, just a super quiet guy, really kept to himself, like, kind of, like, just a boring guy. And he just couldn't sell things. So he was just in the wrong field. Yeah. But he, like, lost a lot of his jobs over the years because he was, like, so unlikable and so hard to get to know. And serial killery. <laughs> I think, yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> so... He ended up totally lying about it, though. Mm. He continued to pretend to go to work. He would go to the train station. He was, like, reading, napping, and fretting about how to get his family out of the insane debt that was piling up in front of them. He was totally one of those guys that, like, if you don't provide for your family, you're just, like, a total failure. So he just was obviously like, how am I going to get myself out of this? So, eventually, he did deplete his mother's $200,000 in savings, assist with the financial troubles, but Helen's health totally kept declining. She ended up being diagnosed with cerebral atrophy. Oh, my God. Which is conscious thought and fictions are affected, loss of neurons, and then connections between them, and they actually suggested to totally institutionalize her. John didn't. He was like, no, I can take care of this. We're good. He started selling mutual funds from the home, but this totally did not appease Helen. It wasn't enough money for her. And they didn't sleep in the same bed, and she would constantly chastise and belittle him still. His kids were also doing things that enraged him, such as being interested in theater and acting and dressing trendy. Ah, so against the church. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
he was fearful that his children were very much losing their faith. Mm-hmm. So that's the backstory. Okay. So I think we've gotten to the point where John is very religious mm-hmm. and is concerned about his family. And very impersonable. <laughs> yes, very impersonable. So November 9th, 1971, John List was now 46 years old. In the morning, he sent his kids off to school as normal, but then he took two handguns, guns, <laughs> handguns, a nine millimeter Steyr. Sure. Yep. Nineteen twelve, and a Colt twenty-two revolver out of the car. Once the guns were loaded, he walked back into the house, into the kitchen, and he shoots Helen in the back of the head while she's drinking coffee and eating breakfast. Oh my god, she didn't even see it coming. <laughs> she didn't. After shooting Helen, he drags her to the ballroom while she's laying on top of a sleeping bag. He then walks upstairs where Alma is. She's now 84. And she's also eating breakfast. He walks right up to her, kisses her on the cheek, and then shoots her in her left eye. Ugh. He was unable to drag his mom to the ballroom as well, so he just left her up there. (coughs) Super nice. So after shooting his wife... And his mother, he goes and makes himself a sandwich, which is actually the reason why this podcast is named Murder Sandwich. Oh my god, it all connects. And then he goes to the post office to stop the family's mail. He called the children's schools to explain that they'd be gone for an extended period of time, visiting Helen's ailing mother in South Carolina. He stopped the delivery of milk, and he also went to the bank and closed both his and his mother's bank accounts, totally emptying them. So when he gets back home and Patricia and Frederick show up from school. So Patricia's now 16, Frederick is 13. Mm-hmm. When they arrive home from school, he basically like hides in the house until they're inside and he shoots both of them in the back of the head. Oh my God. And he lays them in the ballroom, also on top of sleeping bags next to their mother. So his middle son, John Jr., whom was a, reportedly his favorite kid, um, was actually playing a soccer game. And so he left to go watch him play soccer. Mm-hmm. And when he drove him home, he shot him. But he was the worst of the... T- he was actually not shot in the head at all. He actually had 10 bullet wounds in his face and his chest and defensive wounds. So he shot him, like, in front of him. So he knew it was coming. So he was the worst, for sure. He had, like... like his entire jaw was shot off. Oh my god. So his was, like, definitely the most violent. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is ironic, because he was the favorite. Yeah, I think that, like, there just must have been a struggle, and he, like, who knows what happened. Maybe John was, John Sr. was shooting and started crying because he realized it's his favorite, and then he just had to ruin it. Maybe. I don't know. Like, That's it's kind of weird. But he ended up laying them all on sleeping bags, like, in a row in the ballroom. He then cleaned up as best as he could. He apparently did, like, a super shitty job. Just (laughs) shit everywhere still. But after the murders, he actually wrote a five-page letter to his church pastor, whose name was Eugene A. Rawinkle. He left it in his study, and the letter claimed that he saw too much evil in the world and that he had killed his family to save their soul and then gave burial instructions for his recently murdered family members. He also wrote letters to other people in his life and a book or a journal, I guess you'd say, with the accumulating debts that he had. Oh, no. 
He then went around the house and cut out his own picture out of every single family photograph. And then lastly, he turned on the thermostat to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, looped some classical music and put it on the intercom so you could hear it throughout the entire mansion, turned all the lights on, and then left. Why has no one made a movie out of this? (laughs) I know, right? So, unfortunately, the scene was totally not discovered for 29 days. What the hell? Till December 7th. So, there's a few different... I actually found a couple different reasons as to why. So, one, the excuses that he gave the church and the school and the neighbors, like, didn't really add up because they were gone for, like, so long no one had heard from them. So, one of the teachers actually went out to go look in the house, and then the neighbor saw this teacher there and got suspicious and called the police. But also, the neighbors had reported that, like, the lights in the house, there was no activity. They could hear music, but the lights were starting to, like, slowly burn out because they were, like, constantly on. Yeah. And so they just basically reported both of those at the same time. So the police showed up, saw the teacher there, and the teacher explains the whole story. They walk around the house, and he found an open window. He goes in, and he ends up finding the bodies. Mm -hmm. So obviously, like, very, very disturbing discovery, and it smelled awful. Well, yeah. (laughs) So... The lie that John was told about Helen's mother wasn't a total lie. She was, in fact, ill and had actually recently wanted to come down there. And he did later admit that if she had not canceled her trip, he would have totally killed her, too, and been his sixth victim. Wow. So good for her for not coming, I guess. Yep. Decomposition had totally started. Mixed with the classical music playing was just probably very creepy. Mm Mm-hmm. So the police did find the letter to the pastor. It's what tipped off the police on a nationwide manhunt. They actually, like, put out all the information about his glass because he wore glasses and had, um, like, dentures of some sort. Oh, okay. And then his, like, devout Lutheran. He They actually put, like, all these reports out to all the dentists all over the country, eye doctors, and Lutheran church, and, like, came back with nothing. So... The last trace of him was that he left his green 1963 Chevy Impala at the JFK airport. It was discovered several days after the bodies were discovered, and he left the keys and the title inside. So he's just, like, gone without a trace. Okay. I'm going to go back a little bit, and we'll talk about maybe, like, what he did after, but he was not discovered for 18 years. Okay. So we'll talk a little bit about what he maybe did in that 18 years. Okay. Um, in 1971, as the FBI later discovered, he traveled by train from New Jersey to Michigan and then to Colorado and then ended up settling there in like early 1972. He took an accounting job and his new name was now Robert Peter Clark, but when is Bob? So this is actually the name of one of his college classmates, but this college classmate apparently did not know who John List was and had never met him before, so... It's kind of weird. So he left no impression on this guy. No. (laughs) Shocking. Shocking. (laughs) This impersonable male. Yeah, exactly. So from 1979 to 1986, he was the controller at a paper box manufacturer outside Denver. He ended up joining a Lutheran congregation after about four years. That's when he felt like it was safe to like do that again. He laid very low for the first few years. 
He actually ran a carpool for shut-in church members after he felt confident enough to get a car. Mm-hmm. Let's just say you could not do this nowadays. Like, no. just take over identity. Like, when I read these, it's just mind-blowing to me that people can even do that. I know. That's what I think when I watch true crime shows. I'm like, how did you make that happen? How did no one know who you were? Like, he got a car. He got car insurance. He got an apartment. He got a job. You need all. You need approval for all of yeah. these things. He just, like, took someone's random social security number. How do you just take someone's social security security number i don't know (laughs) it's ridiculous so at one of his religious gatherings he actually met an army clerk named dolores miller and he married her in 1985 so she was previously married she was a widower and never had any children in february 1988 the couple moved to midlothia virginia where bob clark aka list resumed work as an accountant so, basically, his life didn't really change when you think about it. Right. He's, like, still an accountant. Everything's fine. He's still He's going still to church. Charging. Yeah. Like, other than his family not being around, his life is, like, pretty much the same. Right. So, in May of 1989, so we've jumped a few years now. This is 18 years after the murder. Mm-hmm. On the first season of America's Most Wanted, they ran his story. So the broadcast actually featured an age-progressed clay bust that was crafted by a forensic artist named Frank Bender. So I did do a little bit of research on who, like, actually caught him. Mm -hmm. So the story that I found, I couldn't find, like, a reputable source. So I'm not sure if this is actually true. But they did have neighbor in Denver for a really long time. Okay. And she actually thought that this Bob Clark was John List because she saw like a stupid magazine, like one of those scam, not scam, but like National Enquirer type magazines. Right, right. And they had his face in it from like hit back when he, like back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And her name was, uh, I think her name was also Brenda, just like his stepdaughter. And she thought that it was him. Like she's like, it looks like him, just older. And right. she actually told his wife Dolores and she just like threw it out and didn't believe her and so when the when the broadcast eventually gets put where brenda is she's like just convinced even further from this sketch like that looks exactly like him so she ends up finding out where they live when they move to virginia she calls the police and she's the one who tells them so they got like a ton of hits apparently like 200 so they eventually got to him so, um, so less than two weeks later, they captured him on June 1st, 1989, and because of that neighbor, and he totally continued to stand by his alias for, like, months. Like, when they picked him up, he was like, no, I don't know who John List is. Like, I'm Robert Clark. Oh, my God. So they actually had taken his fingerprints from the house. Oh, okay. So they matched his fingerprints, um, as well as on his military records. Uh, and he obviously got caught so he eventually confessed his true identity on february 16th 1990 so he held on to it for like a while jesus and then they set his bail for one million dollars and then they eventually sent him back to new jersey for the trial and he hadn't been there since he murdered his entire family that must have felt weird for him yeah (laughs) Sure. <laughs> we don't care if he felt Sure, weird. we care that it felt weird for him. <laughs> so at trial, he did testify that his financial difficulties reached 
crisis level in 1971 when he was laid off. Mm -hmm. He was skimming money from his mother's bank accounts to avoid defaulting on the mortgage. And he apparently had encouraged his children to seek part-time work, advised it was to teach them maturity and responsibility, but it was really just to help him with costs. A court-appointed psychiatrist testified that List suffered from OCD and that he saw only two solutions to a situation, which was to accept welfare or kill his family and send their souls to heaven. Welfare was an unacceptable option, he reasoned, because it would expose him and his family to ridicule and violate his authoritarian father's teachings regarding the care and protection of family members. Okay. Which, like, seriously? It's a little messed up. deceased father, why do you care? (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) Also, according to testimony from another psychiatrist, to find his wife having a venereal disease was morally, ethically, and religiously a very hard thing for him to accept. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So on April 12th, he was convicted of 1990, um, convicted of five counts of first-degree murder. Good. The judge imposed a sentence of five terms of life imprisonment to be served consecutively, which is the maximum penalty at that time. He did appeal, obviously, Mm because that's what he's like. And uh, the saying that he was mentally impaired at the time of the crimes from PTSD from his times in World War II in Korea, which let me just preface that he was a lab person. He never actually was like shooting people. He was never inactive. No, he just like he was essentially like a lab tech. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, I'm not definitely not trying to discount PTSD from the war, um, but like he never had a gun. Like, he never held a gun while in the war. He obviously don't even murder his family. He has a different (laughs) level of PTSD. So, I don't know if I totally believe his PTSD, but anyway. And then he also alleged that the letter left at the crime scene for his pastor should have been inadmissible because communication between a spiritual leader and a supplicant is apparently privileged. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, so his appeal was obviously rejected. Good. And then he ended up dying of pneumonia at the age of 82 on March 21st, 2008. Also good. Yeah. And then this was the weirdest fact that I found. And I hope you found it just as weird as me. This is the weirdest fact coming up. He was buried next to his mother. Why? (laughs) I literally wrote a note saying yes, the one he murdered. In St. Lorenz Lutheran Cemetery in Frankenmuth, Michigan. That's what? I was like... I'm uncomfortable with that. Yes. So, yeah. So I wrote a couple notes, because that is the end of the story, but I was unable to find any information on Brenda on what happened after. Because she could still be just, like, out there. I did find, like, a website where it stated that she actually passed away in 1993 at the age of 51. Okay. But I'm not entirely sure, like, 100% if it was her. It was on, like, a genealogy website. Mm-hmm. It did state it was her, but I'm not sure. Um, there was an article about how other people couldn't find information on her either. So, maybe. 51's kind of young. I wish I could have found information, because, like, she's the only surviving family member. Like, doesn't right. even really say what their relationship was after she left. Like, her leaving the house is the last thing I could ever find on her. Maybe she 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 obviously got married and changed her name, but like yeah, how she probably did no, doesn't want to be found. But how did like no one interview her back then and just be like, hey, so like right? You, and how why did no one try and find her? Yeah, I don't know. So 
But you know what? If she if she genuinely died in 1993, then that was like right after he got convicted. What if he had her murdered? (laughs) So the last hint I have here is Breezy Knoll um, was burned down by arsonists in 1972. So like right after the murders, about a year later. Just to remember, Breezy Knoll's the house. Right. Okay. The mansion that I lived in. Um, Totally destroyed everything. Including the Tiffany stained glass skylight. Oh my god. So what's really interesting about this is estimates indicate that it was actually well worth over a hundred thousand dollars back in nineteen seventy one. That's which it? is about equal to about six hundred and seventy thousand dollars now. Oh, okay. But people are very interested as because that would have actually helped him with his financial difficulties. With selling the house? Well, why didn't he just sell the Tiffany Chandelier? To help him with his financial difficulties. Idiot. Like, what? So basically his motive in the end, he did end up saying, is that he would have never committed suicide because the reason why he killed his family is because he was, it wasn't just financial difficulties, but it was also that he wanted to ensure that they would go to heaven and that they wouldn't head down like a non-faithful path. And he didn't want to commit suicide because he was fully intending on dying one day and joining them in heaven. But isn't like, like I'm not religious, I've never been raised that way, but isn't it a sin to murder? Like I'm assuming so as well. I feel like he's just, he he just wrote himself, (laughs) like his death penalty is to go to hell just by murdering his family. Yeah, it makes no sense. That makes absolutely, religion messes me up, man. (laughs) I'm not sure, because, like, I, I do agree. Like, murder should obviously be a sin. Yeah. I don't think that he joined his family in heaven. And no. if he did, I hope that they somehow smited him back down to hell, because, like, he murdered his whole family. Yeah. Essentially because he was broke, didn't want to admit he's broke. He was embarrassed because his wife had a non-curable disease. Like, I do get that she, obviously, from what I found out, didn't seem like the most pleasant person to be around. But also, at the same time, she did seem to be very sick. Yeah. So, like, why wouldn't have you institutionalized her? Yeah, that would have been the smart thing to do. a smaller place, because you don't need a 19-room mansion. No. <laughs> no one needs that. There's way more solutions, but it's very interesting that that's how he got caught. Yeah. By some neighbor. Like, good for her. Because how many yeah. people would you see, like, on the television for Americans, like, Most Wanted or Crime Stoppers and actually be like, oh, that looks like my neighbor. I'm going to actually call the 1-800 number. If I saw someone on, like, Canada's Most Wanted, if that was a thing, or, like, cops <laughs> that I knew, I'd be like, yo, I wouldn't say anything. Yeah, That's, just... maybe that makes me a bad person. Well, no, because, like, I don't know, I actually genuinely thought about this. And so, like, say you saw your neighbor on there. But you weren't 100% sure if it was your neighbor. Would you really want to, like, uproot their whole lives if you're not confident? Because that would be... If I'm not confident, I wouldn't... I would... But it is anonymous. So they wouldn't know who called. Right. So that's good, at least. So you just have to make sure to, like, never tell anyone. Because I just would... Like, you're gonna... If it's your neighbor... This lady didn't actually live beside them anymore, thankfully. But you would see them get raided... Yeah. You'd see them get taken out of the house. Yeah. And what if it ends up not being them? I would feel super guilty if it And then all the other neighbors can see, so then they're like, what the hell? Yeah, and then everybody would, through process of elimination, figure out who it was that said something. (laughs) 
I wouldn't want to do that. It would just be sketch. Yeah. But in this case, it obviously worked out. It worked out in her favor, so good for her. Yeah. Yikes. I, I can't even imagine what I would do in that scenario. I also just, like, don't really know any of my neighbors when I live anywhere. So. That's true. I don't want to know my neighbors. I'm like, oh, you live next to me? Cool. We'll never say hi. <laughs> like, I don't know any of my neighbors <laughs> at all. So, yeah. But that is definitely one of my favorite cases. That's messed up. It just makes a sandwich afterwards. That's the part that gets me. I actually Googled what kind of sandwich he had. What was it? Was it a Reuben? Was it a club? <laughs> I didn't say. But I think he, uh, he sounds like pretty basic to me. So I bet you it was like a bologna and mustard. Ew. With like white bread. No crust. It cuts off his crust. I actually. The crust is the devil's lettuce. <laughs> I can see religious people saying that. People that are that devout that they kill their family. I can see that. Um, and then if anyone is interested in looking up the case, I do just want to give a warning that there are many websites that actually show crime scene photos. <gasps> so just trigger warning if you are looking up things that you will see Alma deceased in the kitchen and you will see the ballroom full of bodies on the sleeping bags. I need to see this. Now. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did end up seeing those. So <laughs> was it scarring for you? No, because it's 1971 photos, so they're not, like, in HD or anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> Plus, we've seen enough, like, crime shows and stuff to... I'm pretty... Now that those are legit. Disclaimer. <laughs> but I'm pretty, like, desensitized to some of it. That's fair. There are some cases that I have seen photos, and they are pretty graphic. But these ones were bad. But just a trigger warning in case anyone, there is, like, obviously... They did take the photos after they were found, after 29 days. So that is definitely the most horrific part of it, mm -hmm. um, is that you can kind of tell the decomposition of things. Is it sick that I really, I love that? Yeah. Okay, cool. It's fine. You're not alone. Good. Whew. I am like a little bit indifferent to the crime scene photos because I actually think about like the families. Like, a, Oh, that's fair. There's some like recent ones. Like, the, there's a case about Jodi Arias, and right. she, uh, I actually want to do her case at some point, but she did, she killed, like, her ex-boyfriend, and uh, they took lots of, like, sexy photos together, um, and you can find all of them online. Like, oh very graphic, like, nude photos of both of them, mm. and so, like, I just think that's really sad for his family, is, like, they're yeah. out there forever. Yeah. Like, that's messed up. And that's so when I think about that, like, I'm obviously not the only one who viewed them. Mm -hmm. And just, like, just, like these ones are a little bit old, so their bloodline is, at, like, severed, essentially, because he killed his whole family. But with Jody Arias and Travis Alexander, that's his name. Okay. <laughs> um, that's, like, really sad. Like, yeah. he only died, like, ten years ago, so, like, his whole family... It's still fresh to them. Super... And it's not hard to find. No. Like, at all. Yeah. Like, you literally Google it, and it's, like, there. Yeah. Oh, you can, there's, like, I remember reading articles in Cosmo when I used to read Cosmo magazine, and there would be we just, like. You still read Cosmo. I tr <laughs> you know what? I don't. I like, I haven't bought a Cosmo in, like, ten years, which is shocking, because I used to collect them. I used to just draw, like, mustaches on all the people's faces. No, I read them for, well, because I was a virgin for so long. I would read them being, like, oh, that's what sex is? Do you want me to edit that out? No. Okay. <laughs> I don't care. You heard it here first. <laughs> That's funny. No, but I would remember seeing like, like, um, cause they would always have articles. Like every single issue in Cosmo had articles about like, oh, it's not safe to be a single woman in the world. And so like, here's how to save yourself. And here's like 
a traumatic story that you have to read to scare you. It would always be like a picture the night before the person died or like the night of when the person died. And those are the most chilling to me. If it's like an actual crime scene and it's bloody and gory and stuff, like I thrive on that. I love horror movies. Like It's messed up, but that's just how it is. But if I see like someone's face or like one of the, probably a serial killer you're going to use for one of your podcasts, but I can't remember his name at all. It was around the Ted Bundy time. BTK? Maybe. There was a picture of a woman that he, whoever it was, kidnapped, and then he shaved her head and, like, changed her clothes and everything, and it was, like, the picture he took a minute before he shot her or whatever. That chills me to the bone, and it makes me feel so creepy. But I feel like if I looked up these photos, I'd just be like, let's show me more. And there wasn't a whole bunch, and I definitely didn't look for more, but... Yeah, like, I didn't actually, like, I knew about this case before I chose it. I mm-hmm. actually didn't know that he played classical music throughout the house, and that must have just been, like, really creepy. That would have been the creepiest thing, because honestly... Climbing just... through a window of a mansion that has all their lights on, and the thermostat's, like, super low, whatever 40 degrees Fahrenheit is in Celsius. I'm horrendous at that, but it's cold. It's cold. <laughs> it's cold. Um, just going in there and, like, seeing that while classical music playing on a loop. Well, and not only that, like, sound technology was not great in the 70s, so it would have been, like, slowed down classical music because it's been played so long and that I, it's tired, I'm, and that would be even creepier. And I'm curious, like, how long did it take for them to find Alma? Did they focus on the ballroom for too long and didn't realize Right, and then upstairs? not look around? That's yeah. scary, too. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, some rookie on the crew. I was actually a little surprised that he killed his mother. I'm not. I don't know, like, I wonder if he ended up, like, resenting her for, like, being so strict, and that's why he killed her, too, because, or do you think that he killed her just so he could take all her money? Because he was power of attorney on her bank accounts, right? So that's why he was able to take all the money out. I think that was maybe, like, a part of it, but from what it sounds like, he was not treated well by women, (laughs) and I feel like that kind of inspired him, where he was like, my wife's a bitch. (laughs) <laughs> and she dominates me, and I don't like it because I'm a man, and I need to be the power of the house. And my mom has been controlling, you know, the people that are in my life. I think he has a mom thing, or just like a powerful women thing. Yeah, like I think he's just like the textbook family annihilator. Totally. Like for sure. Yeah. Like family annihilator John List is right beside there. In- Why the hell would you murder your own children? That's the part that, like, I don't know, just leave. It's also 1971. Like, if you could disappear so easily with them being dead, why wouldn't you just go disappear with leaving them alive? Yeah, why would you... Yeah, that's so messed up. Like, like, why wouldn't you just go disappear and then keep them alive? But that's the whole point of that is that he wanted to ensure that they went to heaven. And if he left them, then the faith in their lives would be broken. And, like, that whole segment of his motive is, like, separate. Sounds so made up. It's just stupid. It just sounds like an excuse that a serial killer is using. To validate his sin. like I also tried to find the five-page letter to the pastor, but I couldn't find it. Oh my god, that'd be so cool. But it was just like a really long confession, I guess. And then he gave like specific instructions on that um, they all wanted to be cremated. And where Helen should be buried. Because she had a plot already bought for her um, beside her mother. Mm-hmm. And in a different state. And then I did read also that the day before the murders before he went or the kids went to school he actually asked his kids how they want 
like have they thought about what wants to happen to them when they die and they're like oh we'll be cremated and like blah 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 and they like said a few things and patricia ended up telling her drama teacher and thought that he was she was just being dramatic and that was the teacher that went to the house oh i just got chills (laughs) super creepy yeah yeah why would you ask your kids how they want to Although, I guess like my parents making, have asked me that But, like, before. making them waffles when they're six... Like, they're not... Old. Like, they're 16, 15, or 16, 15, and 13. And you're going to ask a 13-year-old if they've thought about dying. Yeah, that's messed up. <laughs> like, no. No, I haven't. But, like, weird. Yeah, super weird. I just... Ugh. I feel like there's a significance to shooting them in the back of the head. Or is that just that he doesn't want to look at them while they die? Why would he look directly into his mother's face and shoot her, though? Like Kissed her on the cheek. And, then and that. Like, why would he do that? I don't know, because he, like, obviously loved her the most. I love you, but I'm sorry. Go to heaven. Left Bang. Ugh. Yeah, and, like, John Jr., like, that was really sad reading. Is that, like, he had, like, a lot of defensive wounds. And he had, like, half of the shots were in his face. And then the rest were in his chest. And he had, like, scratches and everything, like, up his arms. Like, he was, like, totally in front of his dad when it was happening. So he definitely saw it happening and tried to fight. He drove to the school and pick, like, watched his son play soccer while the rest of his family was dead already. He also, after he shot his wife and his uh, mom, I didn't, I couldn't verify this, but apparently he went out and mowed the lawn, and a neighbor, like, <laughs> and a neighbor waved at him, and he was like, "Yeah, whatever." <laughs> my family's dead in my house, but hello. <laughs> like, what? Look at my grass. <laughs> That's fucked up. I don't know if you want me to swear or not. It's fine. You can okay. swear. That's fucked up. <laughs> it is really fucked up. So, but yeah, that's John List. That's, yeah. I didn't, you told me about it when we were going into this and I was like, oh, I'm totally going to read up on it. You know what? No, I'm going to surprise myself. But I'm legitimately shocked at the entirety of the story. Yeah. I just make a sandwich afterwards. That's t- If I was a serial killer, I would do that. <laughs> I'm not a serial killer. <laughs> disclaimer. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, that was the part that uh, I found the most interesting. But unfortunately, I couldn't find what kind. But I swear it has to be a bologna and mustard. Oh, yeah. Something real plain and <laughs> Or American. like just bologna and mayo. Yeah. Or even just bologna. Ew. You I don't moisture. know. <laughs> you need moisture. You need vegetables. You're talking to a chef here who loves sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. That does wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> that concludes. That concludes our first podcast. So I hope everyone enjoyed it. And stay tuned for the next one. Woohoo! Thank you. Thank you.